And it's one of those things we keep emphasizing that if somebody's going to come and ask you about uh, polygamy or uh, uh, the priesthood or something that you're ready with an answer, you'll answer it. If you're going to look at them and go, uh, I don't know, then you're, you need to have an answer. Um, whether it's your kids or whether it's the neighbor. Well, some of these answers, some of the best answers in the past have been uh, places like uh, fair.org, which is kind of a, a church uh, apology site that gives good explanations on, yes, there were horses in the Book of Mormon, or let's talk about DNA, or some of the questions that sometimes uh, those attacking the church read. But I did notice that the church in the last month I started to put together large essays that you can get on LDS.org. Uh, one is explaining blacks in the priesthood. One is on polygamy. There's another one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Same-sex attraction and, and marriage and stuff like that. So, so and, and in each case, these are actually fairly long essays. Uh, and for instance, you'll be interested in knowing in talking about uh, uh, the, the gap on why... Blacks were given the priesthood for a while. Long explanation, and they're very clear about saying, we're not sure where the origins are. We can't find it. Uh, even in a revelation given to Brigham Young, we just know that it was a practice that began, and, and the brethren later on wanted to change it, felt inspired, not that it wasn't time yet to change it, or anxious to change it, uh, but, but very interesting. Yeah. Repeat that. It's uh, LDS.org. And there's a, there's a couple of... I haven't actually drilled down from LDS.org LDS to those sites. I don't know if anybody has. I just read the releases that have come out in the paper. Yeah, well, and there was, that's right. There was some parts of that that just said we can't count that there was were, there were certain flaws in that. Yeah, yeah, but, but they were clear about saying this didn't begin with Joseph Smith. Which was kind of interesting. So anyway, that's that's a big. Uh, all right, that's it. So yeah. Let me just put the search. Yeah, I, I think for sure. If you went to LDS.org and you put it in the search engine, I'll bet it. Uh, I think you'd also probably find it under news. They have a news news release or something like that. Um, but I'm glad to see that the church is really kind of tackling some of these these questions. Okay. And again, I just think it's incumbent upon us as members to be able to have an immediate answer ready to go if somebody answers that. Okay. Uh, item number two. Uh, starting next week, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to try this. We're actually going to move this institute class to the Plano State Center. Okay. That is, for, for those of you coming from McKinney Allen, that means rather than getting off on the Legacy Spring Creek, just go down to Parker and come straight across, and then down into Round Rock. We'll, we'll, we'll post a map. Uh, we're going to try that for a, a couple of weeks. There's a couple of advantages to that. One is that I've got a massive screen in the chapel there, so that the thing we put up on the screen will be much bigger. I just want to try that, and then I'll get your feedback as to what you think. Okay. When, when did you say? Starting, the, ne starting next week. Next week. For okay. the next couple of weeks. Okay, and that's, a, that's on Round Rock and Plano. I think most of you have probably been there one time or another, you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you an address, a little Google map thing. 
Yes, 2700 Round Rock. The nice thing is, is that Round Rock runs from Park to Parker. And it runs across. It doesn't matter whether you come across Park and up or Parker and down. You'll run into Round Rock. You'll hit Round Rock and then just have to go down and we'll be dead. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, last thing. Uh, you'll notice that we made a change in the uh, topic of study. Uh, did a, did uh, put a lot of prayer and, and study into this and took a look at what was available there. And then also was aware that in gospel doctrine we're starting to hit Old Testament as well. And part of it was based on the fact that I didn't want to double up there. But I started looking at the material that I thought would be available for this class in both uh, the, the next part of the Old Testament and what was available to us in the Gospels. And it just seemed to me almost more a more natural extension of all the covenants and promises we've been talking about with Moses and Abraham to then hop into the Gospels and see the fulfillment of those covenants. So I uh, appreciate you uh, making the jump. Now, what are we going to do next fall? I have no idea. <laughs> we could go back and do I I've been thinking about maybe Isaiah and some readings from Old Testament. Because that, that, I don't want to miss out on that part. That's the one part in jumping out of the Old Testament. I was really looking forward to Isaiah and, and some of those kind of things. So we may do that uh, this next fall. Okay? Um, all right. Questions? I think. Good. I just, it, it's a, I'm set, <laughs> yes ma'am, how, how, about, how about if I do this, uh, the, the nice thing is I'm, I'm pretty clear, uh, the last couple of times that I've, I've written out the entire semester, here's the classes, uh, the beautiful thing about what we do in this class is that if we run across some things that we really want, like we really want to take a couple of weeks or something and stretch it out, we can do that, we're not bound to a, and, and so every time that I've done that, we ended up throwing it out after about three weeks. But that said, let me, let me send out, I, I do have it written out for the semester. Uh, I do need to get it out to Stacy a little bit faster so that Ron can broadcast it to everybody. But yeah, it, it'd be good to be able to study for the, the coming week what's, what's coming. Um, by the way, you can almost guess what uh, next week will, will be. Next week is going to be about the birth of Christ and, and all that I'm loosely following the gospel doctrine format for New Testament, for the gospels, for the first part. Uh, it's just that they tend to try and cover too much ground in 40 minutes. And we're going to take an hour and a half to three hours to six hours. Okay. But yeah, I'll try to do that. Because the idea is for you to be able to spend all week studying. Because uh, we've always said, um, if, if, if I could get you guys to study sometimes the way I study, you'd get a chance to see some of these things where I, I'm going to take one chapter and study it all week long. That's my scripture study for the week, is one chapter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she, she, she was just saying the irony talk for today was actually perfect in it and it fit. Yeah, this this next this semester is gonna be so meaty in terms of some really, really great stuff. Um, okay. Well that said then, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Let's start with this quote from President Benson. No one adequately or properly knows why he needs Christ until he understands and accepts the doctrine of the fall and its effect 
upon all mankind. Well, that's fairly obvious, isn't it? Do most mankind accept the doctrine of the fall? A lot are mad at Eve. You're right. Just if it wasn't for Eve, we'd be in a much nicer place and, and all that. Okay? What do they understand? Or what do we understand? Islam to Christianity and Jews, there's different viewpoints of what really happens. Yeah. Now, based on that, does that give a skew, again, the need for the Savior? Yeah. And, and that's why it is, when we talk about the, the Savior coming in the meridian of time, the meridian being the, the, the center point, he comes right in the middle, that he's coming to a group of people that do not understand adequately the fall. They become so bad up in the, bound up in the literalness of the law that they're missing the spiritual symbolism behind everything. Okay? Now, but, yeah. Even, I read an article about the Catholic Church this week, I just on me, that um, they're calling um, the story of Adam and Eve a fable. Um, and this was the Pope himself in his speech that he gave, and he called it a fable, and and so really taking out the fall even out of the Catholic Church, which is probably second unto us. Yeah. So strict on the gospel, I guess. Would it make a difference to our to for instance to our teens if they understood the fall? If they understand how fallen we are, how mortal we are. To some it may some point. Yeah. Part of teaching teenager about mortality. <laughs> <laughs> when they're bulletproof? Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. Um, okay, so hand in, hand in glove with this. So this is one of those things that I want to pick up on today. Uh, and we're going to kind of echo it over and over. Here is the key, I think. The better we understand the mission of Jesus Christ, the more we come to know just who we are. And what we really need. Because part of what we're going to keep going over is the better you understand who the Savior was and what He was accomplished and what His mission was, you can't look at that without looking at us. You can't look at the mission without understanding who the target audience was. And you can't understand what He was trying to do and without understanding what we need. Does that make sense? Had an interesting meeting yesterday. I've mentioned this before. Uh, we're doing a. I mentioned that we're doing a fun thing in the uh, in the Plano State, and that we have called all of our. It, it used to be that uh, with the singles program, we're trying to reach out to singles uh, in the state. That we would, if somebody was single in a ward, you'd say, "Oh, we're going to make you the single adult rep," and it was their job to meet with the state committee to then get together and plan dances and fire sales. Um, what, what we've now done is called all of our single adult reps as missionaries, and we're calling a lot of couples within the state to serve as SAMs, single adult missionaries. And their job is to then go out and assess the needs and work with singles and rescue and, and bring them home, but then to come to a state committee and say to us, here's what we need. It's kind of a needs-based we're not, so 
they keep looking at me and saying, well, what's the program supposed to be? And I'm, I'm saying, tell me what the needs are, and I'll tell you what the program is. Because <laughs> I don't know yet until you tell me I can guess some things, but I need to, we need to be hearing from them. Here's what the ward could do to help us with the state, to help us, and we'll put a program together based on that. Well, this is kind of similar to what we're doing here, is the Savior saying, there, I'm going to, I'm going to come to Earth and do certain things, but it's going to be based on the needs that you have. So to understand our needs is to understand the Savior. Does that sort of make sense? The two are inexorably tied. Okay. Okay. So to get us in that mode, I want to, I want to start. We're going to jump ahead in history just a little bit. Uh, we'll kind of come back to this. Uh, moment uh, in a few weeks. But I want to come, I want to talk about this. So let's start in the little synagogue in Nazareth. If you're in, if you're living in Nazareth, you've started to hear that one of your native sons is making a stir in the countryside. He's been doing a number of things. We're hearing about miracles that he is performing. And it's just like, this is the kid we saw growing up here in Nazareth. And by the way, Nazareth is a small, bitty place. It doesn't show up on any maps of uh, the historian Josephus or the Roman stuff. I mean, it was just an insignificant rock quarry near the mountain. Mountain. And so to hear all that, you're kind of fascinated by this kid that has grown and is doing all of these things. So when he shows up at your synagogue on the Sabbath... You're kind of interested, right? So let's let's turn to uh, Luke four. So after, after a number of things have happened, now he comes to Nazareth. And there, were mu- there was music in Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, why would it be his custom, as it was his custom, as his custom was, he went up into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Why would that be his custom? It doesn't say the custom of the synagogue. It says as it was his custom. Okay, he learned from his parents. Why would it be his custom? Because it would have been other kids, right? With other parents. Would it be like those of us that bear testimony on pastor testimony? I think so. Well, we can see that. Now, remember the tradition, if you go into a synagogue now, most, especially Orthodox synagogues, the reading as part of the service is set, is set in stone. It just, you know what is coming. Now, we don't know if that was the, the custom back then. We know that it is now. Uh, I suspect maybe not, because he's going to choose something very, very carefully to read. But as was his custom, what do we know about this kid? And again, we'll talk about this more in the next class or two. But just remember, what do we know about him as a kid? He was a teacher. That's well. And he's in the temple teaching them. 
So don't you think we have this whiz kid in the, in, uh, the synagogue? And, and more than likely, you've got this really, really smart, sharp, insightful kid. Who else are you going to have? Because there's two parts. There's read the scripture while you're at the stand, and then come back and sit down and start the discussion. That's the, so it's two parts. Okay. So you can imagine he would, at 12, or 13, 14, he might read the scripture, come back, and start a discussion that would just leave everybody scratching their head, probably. Because he did it in the temple at 12. From there, he pointed to selling a son of a carpenter, too. Right. So he was like a really smart kid. This is Joseph's son? And there's two ways to say that. This is Joseph's son. Come on. Or, wow, this is Joseph's son. Man, that's amazing. Okay. So this is his custom. Uh, he went forth to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, stood up for to read, and there was delivered under him the book of the prophet Isaiah or Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now you just you, you have to love his timing on this. So of all the things he's now going to turn to the book of Isaiah, and he's going to go to chapter sixty-one, the first three verses. I can just going to read according to Luke two verses. We're going to study the third in depth today. So let's go to Isaiah 61. And here's what he's going to stand up to read. And you just read the scripture straight out, no comment, until you sit down. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, and by the way, as I saw, it, it, it would be well known in the Judean community that this is a messianic verse. This is, re- this is referring to the Messiah yet to come. Messiah and David. And so he's just going to read this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Okay? Now, we know from the story that he then does what? He says it's him. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, he's, gonna, he's going to then, in Luke 4, so he's going to read that section. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then in verse 21... Oh, then, then 20, he closed the book, he gave it again to the minister and sat down. All the eyes were upon him. What's he going to say? 21, he began to say to them, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Today, this is fulfilled in me. Now, again, we're going to talk more in a couple of weeks about... Is this Joseph's son that's saying this? Or come on, this is Joseph's son. Really? A couple ways to look at that. Now, but what I, I, what I wanted to do, though, is that rather than look at the story of this, let's go back to what we were just saying. It's impossible to know about the importance of the Savior without knowing about the fall. And it's, in, it's impossible to know about his mission without understanding who we are and what we need. <coughs> and by understanding our needs, we'll understand why he did what he did. Okay? So, I want to look specifically at Isaiah 61, because the Savior is bearing testimony of himself. 
And he's using the scriptures to explain who he is and his mission. These people. So, let's go to... (coughs) I actually broke this down. Because I want you to see the difference. It's really kind of nice. We have, a, we have an opportunity here. We have two versions of the same scripture. One is Isaiah's. If you read that. And then the other is Luke. And Luke is recording. Here's what the Savior said. Now I don't know if the Savior changed this at all. Because there, there are some differences. Or whether there's a difference from the Greek to the Hebrew. I don't know. All I know is that I have two versions of the Savior's testimony of himself. And each one adds... adds to a complete picture. Okay? This is the one I want to take a look at. Okay, so here is the Isaiah version that we just talked about. And here is the Luke version. Now, as you look at the two versions, I want you to tell me your reactions. The difference, what do you see? It's what? It is specific. Yeah, and we're going to find we're going to find out we're going to expect some of these things from Luke because as a physician he has a tendency to look at certain things a certain way. But for instance, what do you see? I think in Isaiah he's laying the foundation and then Luke he's putting the building up. Okay, I like that. Okay, what else? He changes the tense in the very first. On the left it says, because the Lord hath appointed me. And on, on the right it says, because he hath appointed me. Like he's talking about the Holy Father anointing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. What else do you see? <coughs> the wheels turn on. Oh, Yeah, look at that one. In other words, in, in Isaiah, it talks about he's going to preach good tidings. And I think this, is, this may be the difference in the kind of the Greek translation in the New Testament. Remember, the New Testament we get from the Greek. The Old Testament was a translation from Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay? So, so good tidings and gospel for that. Which I, I love that one. And then in Isaiah, it's bind of the broken heart. Yes. Isn't that fun? Okay? That, there, that binding is also healing. Okay? And it's fascinating that the word bind in Hebrew, the, the word is actually almost like, uh, like, like saddling a horse. It's, it's bridling. It is, it is wrapping tightly. Okay? And then that's going to heal and bind up the broken heart. In the last part, Isaiah says that it's going to open the prison, which kind of implies it's external. Whereas Luke says he's going to recover sight of the blind and liberty to them that are bruised, which is sort of self-imposed prison. So it explains more what the prison is. It's self-imposed and not externally. Yes, exactly. And remember, for those that are in prison, uh, and that's going to, we're going to talk about this in a sec, but um, this idea of being bruised. The, the Hebrew word there is, is almost like crush, like crushing a grape. Where the, where there's a crush, there's a weight pressing down on those that are bruised. 
uh, I got uh, in wrestling with the grandkid grandson uh, last week. I got bruised. <laughs> and up with a black eye the night before we're going to do a baptism. Because my six-year-old is going to attack Grandpa from behind, and he's got sharp knees. He swings around and pops me in the eye. So forever and ever, all of our baptism pictures, look at Grandpa, looks like he's been in a fight. I got bruised. Yeah. Okay, so I like that. Okay. Finding out the brokenhearted and healing, you know, the Savior visual of a lot of his pictures are his arms are stretched out and it's said over and over in the scriptures. <coughs> Binding is, could be the hug as well oh. from the same year. Oh, I like that. Healing power. Because remember, one of the words for atonement is embrace. Uh, that, that embrace, that, that pulling close. Again, think of the temple. Okay? It's an embrace. It is the moment where the at one has occurred. We become one because we're in the close embrace. Okay? Yeah? Is there a difference between preach good tidings to the meek and preach the gospel to the poor? Oh, there you go. So in other words, meek and poor end up being kind of equated, right? Okay? It actually does the healing. Yes. The first we bind it in that binding and wrapping, the healing begins. It's going to be dressed and then healed. Good point. Okay. Now, let, let me change your focus a little bit. And then see if this really makes some sense to you. This is the Savior. In both cases, the Savior is giving us His mission. His mission is, is to take care of who? So, so now, so now he's, he's saying, here's my mission. It's to who? The meek, poor, brokenhearted, captives, blind, yeah, bruised. Now you might look at that and say, well, then the Savior's mission is primarily to those that are like in prison or have been, and, and so those that are in mourning. Broader, broader interpretation of that. Who's his mission to? Us. Us. Are we bruised? Yes. Are we brokenhearted? Yes. Do we mourn? Yes. Our sins. This is to those that are that live on the earth and are going to have to be. We are the bruised, the broken, and, and there's no question that part of this he's talking about to the prison, and he's talking partial. Um, Fulfillment of that is when the Savior during three days is going to go to those in spirit prison. But when we sin, are we in prison? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's a translation thing or because he's a physician, but when he talked about recovering the sight to the blind, it's like you are opening up something new. You have just created, you have opened your eyes, a new step, a new beginning. I mean, in a more spiritual aspect. Yes. And the fascinating thing is it's been there all along. So now it's Yeah. Okay, so now he's saying, so so in understanding who the Savior's mission is too, this is telling us about us. That we're bruised, that we're broken, that we're blind. And again, blind means there's something there that we just can't necessarily see. And he's gonna, you know, 
open up our eyes to see what has already been there. Does that make sense? Uh, that's why. That's why we learn about us as much as anything else. Um, in fact, just give you an idea. Let, let, let me uh, let me cut for a second to something that I used in a fireside last night. Um, turn to the uh, to First uh, Nephi eight. The great tree of life. All right. Somebody got that that can read verse 20. Okay. And I also beheld a straight and narrow path which came along by the rod of iron, even to the tree by which I stood. And it also led by the head of the fountain unto a large and spacious field, as if it had been a world. Okay. Now... I'm not exactly getting where I want to be here. Um, Nephi 8. There it is. 24. So now, now read 24. And it came to pass that I beheld others pressing forward. Okay, so we get the picture. There are these people pressing towards here. And? and they came forth and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. And they did press forward through the midst of darkness, clinging to the rod of iron. Okay, stop for a second. Stop for a second. So we have a group of people, and they are doing what with the rod of iron? Mm-hmm. Clinging. Okay, now, I know about you. But I know about me, and that it, what emotion do we tend to feel when we are clinging to something? Part of it is we're, we're looking for safety, and we're looking for safety because we're fearing. Right. We tend to cling when we are afraid. Clinging is a fear-based response. If you're clinging to the edge of a cliff, you're afraid you're going to fall. We cling when we're afraid. Okay. And so we're talking about a group that is surrounded by some darkness, and they are clinging to this rod of iron. Okay, and then, then keep reading. Even until they did come forth and partake of the fruit of the tree. Ah, okay, so they're now going to partake of the fruit, and then, if you look ahead, so this group that was clinging gets to the tree, and what, what happens to them? They are ashamed. Why? What are they ashamed of? And specifically, the mocking coming from the great spacious building, right? What is it? And then it says, and then because of the mocking, what are they going to do? They're going to fall away. They wander into forbidden paths and are lost. So, so let me ask you then. Are we really surprised then that those that are clinging to the rod of iron, even though they're partaking of the fruit, they're more focused on the voices coming from the building and they wander off and they're lost? Is that a big surprise? No, because they're fear-based. They're working out of fear. 
We haven't known anybody in the church or even t- ourselves at times where we have been clinging, but that makes us also susceptible to something that's going to look like safety or reassurance or validation. It's what happens when we cling. Now, let's go ahead and jump down to verse 30. There's another group here. Why don't you keep on reading? Verse 30. But to be short in writing, behold, he saw other multitudes pressing forward. And they came and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron. Okay, same thing. And they did press their way forward, continually holding fast to the rod of iron. Oh, until they came okay, stop for a sec. So we have two groups. One is clinging, the other one is continually holding fast. What's the difference? Faith-based. What do they focus on? Well, they're pressing forward to what? To the tree. They're going to use the rod of iron to give them guidance and direction, but they're continually holding fast. Much different. One is out of fear, one is out of faith. One is out of uh, worry, the other one is out of love. Now, watch what happens, though, to this group. Okay? Keep reading. Until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. Okay. Now, this last group is then going to do something interesting. They are going to fall down and partake. How do you fall down and eat of the fruit of the tree? Long arms, right? <laughs> really long arms. <laughs> <laughs> well, we fall down every week, make mistakes, and we have repent, and then we partake of the sacrament. Right. Okay. It's, it's going to be similar to that. But if you fall down, you can't reach the tree. No, you can reach the tree. That's that's my point. How do you fall down and partake? I get to keep because I was there last time. Okay. Go ahead and go ahead and say. You're being handed the fruit. Yes. Sometimes people have said, well, they'll just eat the fruit on the ground. Really? It's, it's, you know. it's the fruit of the tree of life. I just don't think it gets overripe. Mine's on the ground. Eat the pickings on the ground. There is only one way that you can fall down and partake, and that is it has to be given to you. It's the Savior. Exactly. And that's what happens. Well, you know, there's, there's a great visualization there that that when the day comes that we meet the Savior, that we will fall down and bathe His feet with our tears. We will. And, and so the idea that we would fall at the foot of the tree, which represents Christ and the love of Christ, we would Makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? falling at His feet when He lifts us. Do, do you remember the story, uh, reading the story of uh, Elder uh, Melvin J. Ballard? And there's a, there's a moment that he has a dream. And he, and he dreams that he has been uh, invited to the temple for a meeting. And he waits outside, and then he's, he's told, it's now your turn. And he goes in, and he's invited into this meeting. And he says that he goes in, and uh, he, he says that there's a magnificent being standing there. And he says he's amazed how tall he is. Um, and he says that the being beckons him to come close, and he says that this great being then holds him close in an embrace. He says, I can, I can feel his chest, I can feel the heat from his body, and, and just holds him close, and he says, I thought I would melt. 
And he's so overcome by it, what he's feeling that instead of kind of staying in that race, he kind of slides down to his knees. And then he says, he says two important things. One, it's only when he gets to his knees and he's holding on to this being's feet that he looks down and he sees the prints of the nails. And then he made an interesting statement. He says, looking back on that experience, he says, I would give up everything I ever have been, everything that I am, and everything, everything that I ever hoped to be to experience that feeling again. But the sense of being in that kind of presence is so overwhelming that we fall down. We worship. We just don't feel worthy to be in that presence. But in this being who loves us and wants to hold us close. Well, I think that's the idea of falling down. And I think we would fall down if we know kind of where we are. Now, take that idea of falling down. Look at Isaiah and Luke and see if that doesn't describe us. That we are the brokenhearted. That when we recognize, that we proclaim liberty to the captives. Don't we do that every week with the sacrament? Opening the prison to them that are bound. We are bound up by things, whether they are grudges that we're holding on to. <coughs> Painful things in our life are traumas. He says, I will release you from that as well. I just kind of thought too, the irony of this is that, you know, it was Satan who gave the fruit to Adam, I guess, in the Garden of Eden. And he always tries to twist and camouflage everything. He'll take something that's good and twist it and turn it into something that's not. And he stands for everything that's opposite of all the yeah. Right? See, in other words, he's going to play on the fact that Eve needs to eat of that fruit, the tree of life. You really want to do that. Ah, but before you do that, make sure you eat of the other fruit first, first course, so that you then eat of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever in your sins. I want to, I want to frustrate, but by playing on our need to say, I want to be Healed. I want to be left loose in prison. I want to no longer be brokenhearted. I need to not want to be mourned. To be mourning. I just think that's magnificent. Okay. Um, so, what is he going to do to help us with this? Let me let me jump ahead. Um, I'm going to ruin my my lesson here, but um, let's now look at. Oh, I did do it right. Okay. Let's look at Isaiah 61, 3. Here comes, here comes the next verse. Because if we're going to recognize that here are all of these people. So we've got 1, verse 1 and 2. Now look at verse 3. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, I started studying the Book of Mormon by topics out of the index, and last cool. night I was inspired to look up acceptable and read all the scriptures that have the word acceptable in them. And the one that caught my interest is in the Doctrine of Covenants where it says, where he calls Satan, we bring him to go on a journey, make haste, and proclaim the acceptable year 
let me give you an, an, an instance. You know, for those of you who didn't hear that, she's talking about when is the acceptable year of the Lord? In Luke 4, remember, he's going to say, here's my mission to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he's going to go back and he's going to sit down and he's going to say, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. At that moment in AD 30 in Nazareth, in that synagogue, when was the acceptable year of the Lord? Right now. In that moment. Why? Because you're preaching the gospel. It's the so when is it acceptable? When you're preaching the gospel. It's now. And so he's saying to Sydney, you need to, you need to go out and proclaim the gospel and say to them, if this is the acceptable year of the Lord, when should you accept the gospel? Now. When, we, when, we, when we're preaching it, when we're teaching it, now is the moment. Good, good question. And I love the extra research on that. That's the, that's the digging that you want to do. You ought to be using the tropical guide constantly. Yes. When you hear his words, that's the moment. Then you move on. You act on it when? Immediately. Okay? Um, so, based on that then, so here's his mission. He's to do all these kind of things. Now look at verse 3 in Isaiah. And we're still, we're still talking about the Savior's mission. Before we hop into the New Testament, this next, uh, the Gospels, the rest of the semester, we need to understand who He is so we understand who we are. Okay? Now, verse 3. Now, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, and we decided that that was who? Us. Okay. To give unto them beauty for ashes. Now, there's two things in there that just are, are amazing. First of all is the idea of ashes. When we speak about ashes... We tend to be describing what? In, in, a, in, a, old, in a New Testament kind of world. When are they using ashes? Sackcloth and ashes. Right. Okay. Now, sackcloth. The word um, for sackcloth in Hebrew, in talking about burlap, means running to and fro. Think about the, the weavings that take place in a burlap set as opposed to fine linen. Fine linen means the threads are all very tight and fine. Burlap, it runs to and fro. It's a very rough, loose kind of thing. Okay? When we are doing our natural man thing and we are sinning and we're just struggling, aren't we kind of running to and fro with every wing of doctrine? That's kind of the idea. That when we are mourning, we're running to and fro. Especially we're mourning our sins. We're just loose. We're just not tight. Okay? Now, ashes though. Why would we... They're going to put on burlap and they're going to wear ashes on their head. What, is, what are ashes? Where are the ashes? What are ashes? Literally. Yeah, and... and wood was alive, right? Then you burn it and then it's... Dead. So you're putting dead stuff on you. 
which is a pretty good description of the natural man. We're running to and fro and we're hanging on to dead stuff. Okay, now, here, you ready for this? What does the Savior do for those that are in mourning, that are running to and fro and marrying dead stuff? He's going to replace the ashes with beauty. Now, you ready for this one? You know what the Hebrew word for beauty is? Bond. What is it? Bonnet. Bonnet? Bonnet. Referring to the cloth bonnet worn by the priests of Aaron. Remember, you wear the cloth bonnet where the crown goes. And it just says there's, there's a crown coming. So he's going to replace that dead ashes that you were wearing on your head with a beautiful bonnet. What's he referring to? The temple. Absolutely. That's the beauty of it. So he's going to take those that are mourning and struggling and running to and fro, and he's going to give them beauty. And he's going to give them beauty in the house of the Lord. Now, what comes after that then? Not only am I going to give you beauty for ashes, the next thing I'm going to do is what? I'm going to give you the oil of joy. So what am I going to do? I'm going to anoint you with oil. Okay? And then I'll do one other thing for you. So I'm going to, I'm going to replace the ashes with beauty. I'm going to anoint you with oil. And then I'm going to do one more thing. That is I'm going to replace the heaviness, the sackcloth, with what? A garment. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to get the garment. It's not just any garment. It's the garment of praise. Think for a minute of the, uh, the prodigal son. And the prodigal son uh, is, is out there and struggling and spent everything. And, and then he ends up in the... Uh, in the pigsty, and he's eating all that stuff, and then he remembers his dad, and he says, my dad would have me back even as a servant. So I ought to go back. And he turns around, and he goes back, expecting to be made a servant. And as he goes back to, to his dad, his dad is waiting for him. He's looking for him. He hasn't written off. He's waiting for it. His dad also knows that, that, and again, we'll talk about this later in the semester, his dad knows there's also been a family. It says there's a family in the lake. Maybe that will be the thing that will bring his son home. So the prodigal son comes home, and the dad then is waiting for him, meets him, puts a ring on his finger, symbolic of authority, Power, you're still my son. And what else does he give him? I will replace the burlap. I will replace the sackcloth with the robe of righteousness. The temple symbolism is just thick here. 
Because what he's saying to me is, we're going to take those that are struggling in life, and I will be, and I'm going to take care of you in such a way that I'm going to put you in a place where you can become everything that I intend you to be. And I will dress you the way you're supposed to be dressed. Is that awesome? Now, as a result of that, then, he says, now, that they might be called what? Those that I have done this for, that they might be called what? Oh, trees of righteousness. Weren't we just talking about a tree? We're talking about a tree. It was the tree of life. And he's saying, if you will allow this to happen, if you will replace all of these things and let me put on you the beauty, let me put on you the robes, let me put a ring on your finger, then what do you become? A tree of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, just like the tree of life. The Savior was a tree of life to those that would be saved. You will also become a tree, a plant, a righteous planting. And you will call up, and you will help other people come and be saved. Isn't that cool? That's his, now, why are we talking about this before we start diving into the New Testament? This is him. This is his mission. Who are we? Yeah. We're to become like him, right? Now, questions on this? Does this sort of make sense? I just love the imagery. Now, that's why some, some parts, maybe as early as this fall, we need to do Isaiah because it's so rich. But you have to read it. Isaiah was never meant to be prose. It's supposed to be poetry. Which means you take it line by line and tear it apart and see what it's being taught. And it's just, it's just magnificent. Okay? Anything else on this one? Okay. Oh, got 30 minutes. Um, that's supposed to be kind of sackcloth and there's no ashes there. Okay, now, we're going to get another explanation. I want to go through one more explanation of who the Savior is. Um, we're going to look at uh, John, first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Now, we need to understand that uh, in the first part of here, which John are we going to talk about? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Fascinating to me. Do, do we have the book of John the Baptist? No. Do we need to get the book of John the Baptist? Oh, I hope so. So important is the book of John the Baptist that act, we actually have three places in our scriptures that we can find little bits of the book of John the Baptist. The first part is going to be John, the Apostle John, is going to be quoting 
from John the Baptist book. It's so important that when, the, when Joseph Smith went through the translation of the book of, of the scriptures, he got to this part and provided us a Joseph Smith translation which provided more information on what John the Baptist was saying. And it's so important that the Lord then gives us another piece to this over some of the same material, and it's going to be in DNC 93. Actually, have three different parts. Look at this. And any time the Lord starts repeating scriptures to us, I really perk up and pay attention. Like, how important is Malachi uh, 3 and 4? Well, really important because it shows up in all our scriptures over and over. Okay? So, uh, in fact, I'm not. Before we go to Isaiah, or go to uh, John 1 in the inspired version, I want to hop over, turn over to uh, DNC 93, and let's look at that one. Because the Lord and John and John the Baptist are going to give us some specific information so that we understand better the, the role and the mission and the journey of the Savior. Verse 6. Um, and John, meaning John the Baptist, saw and bore record of the fullness of my glory. And the fullness of John's record is hereafter to be revealed. Yay. We just can't get it fast enough. Um, is hereafter to be revealed. Seven. And he bore record. John did. I saw his glory that he was in the beginning before the world was. In all likelihood, what did John see? Jesus Christ. Where? In the council. That he was apparently, uh, pretty good chance that what he's describing is, I saw his glory in the pre-existence. I saw, I knew who he was. And I saw that moment. I saw his glory that he was in the beginning before the world was. Therefore, in the beginning, meaning pre-existence. Now, if you just went to the book of John in the New Testament, in the beginning was the word, you would think the beginning was. It's kind of the beginning with our word, right? And he's saying, no, in the beginning, I'm talking about the real beginning in, in the pre-existence. Therefore, in the beginning, the Word was, for He was the Word. And the Word means even the messenger of salvation. The light and the redeemer of the world, the spirit of truth, who came into the world because the world was made by Him and in Him. Now listen very carefully. I think this is fascinating, talking about this Savior. In Him... <coughs> was the life of man and the light of man. Don't get too deep on this. But, so the Savior for us is our life and our light. 
What would be the difference between that, do you think? So he separates it out. What would be our, our, the life of man? Our physical mortalness. He helped create that, our physical mortalness. Okay? And the light of men, our spirit. Yeah. So not just our physical being, but our spiritual being, and he's both. That's who he is. Um, ten. The worlds were made by him. Which? Which worlds? All of them. What about the other creations? Not of this earth. He created those two? Yep. Remember all ultimate that uh, we have and we quoted it last last year. Uh, that that Joseph wrote a poem, I think with the help of W.W. W. Phelps. It is the poem version of section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Of Vladimir. And what it basically says is that all the worlds were saved by the very same Savior as ours. He created them, he saved them. Somebody was asking me in church yesterday, so does, does that mean that Satan was like sort of Lucifer on every planet? I have no idea. Never been revealed. Could be. The worlds were made by him, men were made by him, all things were made by him, and through him and of him. And I, John the Baptist, bear record that I beheld his glory. Now he's going to tell us something interesting. Uh, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came and lived upon us. Verse 12. I, John, saw that he received not the fullness at first, but received grace for grace. Um, so he's going to go through that. And then he's going to say... Uh, I, John the Baptist, bear record, verse 15, the heavens were opened, the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of the dove. Uh, that's why if you didn't, if you were still wondering, are we sure this is John, John the Baptist? It's right about here that you find me for sure, no, this is John the Baptist, not John the Reverend. The heavens opened, the Holy Ghost descended on him in the form of the dove, sat upon him, voice out of heaven, this is my beloved son. And on that moment, John says, I, I bear record that he received a fullness of the glory of the Father. At his baptism, he received a fullness of his Father. Okay. Now. Look at verse 19 that comes on here. That after all of this, we're being taught about who the Savior is in His magnificence. He's then going to say, I gave this to Joseph Smith to put in the Doctrine and Covenants. Why? Look, look, look at verse 19. I give you these sayings. Why? That you may understand and know how to worship, know what you worship, that ye may come unto the Father in my name. And here it comes. You ready? For those of you struggling in burlap with ashes on your head, that have finally had that beauty restored to you and all of that, then he says, I'm going to teach you how to worship and what to worship so that you may come unto the Father and do what? 
receive of His fullness. The same way that the Savior did. I want you to become like Him. He's a tree, you're a tree. He got the fullness, you get the fullness. Well, that's, in learning about the Savior, we're learning what about ourselves? Yeah, our potential, how magnificent we can be. Right? It's just Okay? Now. Um, let me pop back for just a second to um, one other thing I want to kind of highlight. So, so now, stay with me. Remember, we have three different copies of the book of John the Baptist, okay? Now we're going to go to the Joseph Smith translation. We just went to DNC 93. <coughs> now we'll go to the JST John 1. Now, if, if you've got the electronic version, you may be able to pop back and forth. If you've got the hard copy version, look in the appendix for the Joseph Smith translation. You can find John 1, 1, uh, 1 through 34. Page 807. Okay. In the beginning was the gospel preached unto this through the Son. So it's, it's a little bit different. You're going to get a little, bit, little different information here coming to this. The gospel was the Word. The Word was with the Son. The Son was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Okay? In Him was the gospel. The gospel was light. Was the life. And the life was the light of men. Um, now, it's this next stretch here. And we're kind of starting to wind down with that. Um, and verse 5. And the light shineth in the world. The light of the Savior. And the world does what? Doesn't understand it. Doesn't understand it. The world. And, and the word. And, and it's interesting that the word says that, that the world did what? Perceive it not. I cannot comprehend it. The world can't comprehend it. It can't perceive it. it can't. Okay? Well, Kevin, and I think that the word perceive also means that it doesn't even get their attention. Right? It's not that they don't understand it, it's that they don't feel like They're still wandering in the midst of darkness. I thought, for instance, when I look at that tree of life thing, isn't it interesting that for... That for Lehi, he goes to the tree of life, he eats the fruit, and it's like, wow, this is like the greatest fruit ever. I've never tasted anything great like this. This is so good. Oh, my family's got to taste this, you know, and he's looking for them. Okay, those that are clinging to the rod of iron and ashamed, it says they partook of the fruit, but even in the midst of partaking of this fantastic fruit, they're more focused on the building. They're not even perceiving how great it is. They're missing it. So they're going to perceive it not. Uh, and the light, verse 5, the light shineth in the world, perceive it not. Um, 
Look at, look at verse 10. The Son of God, He who was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Huh. This is Joseph's son. I don't think so. He's not a prophet. He's just a, he's just a lowly stonemason here in Nazareth. Alright? That's what, by the way, that's what Joseph was. You may know that. Not a lot of carpenters in Nazareth. It's a rock quarry. Probably stonemason. Any carpentry was to set up his stonemason. Um. The world knew him not. So here's this magnificent being, and he's come to earth, and the world's just not perceiving it. And then he's going to say in a variety of places, uh, this, and, and let's talk about this for a sec. Verse 8, he, uh, John was not the light, but he came to bear witness of that light, which was the true light. I am the true light. So, so you know, like you have all these people who aren't seeing it for what it truly is. Right. Like Alma. So Alma prays about his son. His son isn't seeing it for what it truly is. But then, then his son has this incredible manifestation. So it's like you want everyone to have this incredible manifestation. Oh. I, I know. And, you know, and unfortunately, that, that passage in Alma has has inspired LDS parents forever <laughs> to say, okay, I know that they need to learn the gospel on their own. I want the angel experience for my kids. For that, for that kid that is doing stupid, send the angel. You know, and, and, and by the way, Alvin himself later on, chapter 29, he says, oh, that I were an angel. What angel does he want to be? His angel. I want to have that kind of effect. I'm going to rattle the earth and shake everything. I want people to get it and finally open their eyes. Wouldn't that be awesome? Ain't happening. Yeah, but, but y'all, but, so, so they saw an angel, but they didn't want to perceive it either. They were busy looking at the building. Yeah, I know. Okay, so he's the true light. Now, okay, so here's my question. John's going to say that uh, the Savior was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Which lighteth who? Every man and woman. Whoa. And so really what we're talking about here is, we call it the light of Christ. World calls it conscience or calls it whatever. It's the light of Christ. It is his being in all of that. Now, if we're not careful though, we get caught up in trying to examine the difference between what is light and darkness. And there's a place for that. But it's interesting that the Savior is using a different term. I am the So sometimes instead of looking at the difference between true light, what do we need to 
what do we need to be able to compare between? True light and? Yes. What would be some examples of false lights? If he's the true light, what's examples of false lights? Philosophies of men. The what? Oh, the philosophies of man. Well, it is interesting that sometimes when uh, those that are kind of in the scientific community and they're looking at, like, the Bible is a myth, they'll even say, I'm, I wouldn't believe in that stuff. I'm much more enlightened. <laughs> yes. I'm not a Neanderthal, knuckle-dragging guy. I'm enlightened. I'm smarter than that. And one of those philosophies of man is that only a few will be saved. There's only a least Yeah, on the religious side, it is kind of that they're going to be just a, just a handful here. We're the really special ones. And on the non-religious side, there is that only the smart really survive. It's the Korohor principle. You've got to survive by your wits. And I'm, I'm sorry if you're poor and stupid, but you're just toast. Oh, there's a good one. He's saying, for instance, in the gay and lesbian community that we are that we're struggling with the idea of what is compassionate, and they're saying compassionate means full acceptance of everything that we do. And if I, and if we're saying we love you, but we don't have to necessarily condone what you're doing, well, that's not that's hate speech. That's non-compassionate, mean-spirited, judging. Uh, I think I mentioned, didn't I, that they ran a, BYU professor ran a, a search, and it used to be that the most common scripture quoted in churches for years and years in Christian churches was John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That was the most often quoted scripture. That has now been replaced. What scripture is now quoted more often than any other scripture? Judge not that you be not judged. <laughs> it's not my place to judge. Uh, whatever you do, not there's anything wrong with that. Okay. That article, brother, I knew that was that was what I wanted my daughter to see. Yeah, that that we we can love somebody but not necessarily condone, but that doesn't mean judging. In fact, the funny thing is in that in that scripture, judge not means condemn not to death. We're supposed to judge every day. But if you're going to judge me, that's still hate speech, and I'm just not sure I can talk False light is quite often those who claim they have light through the use of others. Those who get their testimonies based on another's testimony, not their own. Yes, could be. But I look at somebody else's light. Yeah. They're going to set themselves up as a false light. There's a number of people saying, and I'm smarter and I'm more articulate. Uh, our commercial endorsements are always done by, 
you know, I'm smart enough, I buy this, you should buy this. Because I, I can run really fast. Okay, sometimes, uh, I mean, talking to other people are good, but I think sometimes we need to make sure that we're turning to the Savior and receiving our own personal love and make revelation not just by what our friends tell us. I think sometimes that can happen, in the, it happens in the church. For instance, when we're looking at our own revelation, We'll listen to testimony meeting and say, well, she hears a voice in her head. I should hear a voice in my head. She gets a burning in her bosom. I should get a burning in my bosom. She, you know, and we start comparing. Well, my mom used to always like to see dreams and visions. I don't see dreams and visions. Very, we have our own unique way of doing it, but we can set those up as the light, as the standard. Great point, Stacey. When I uh, occasionally go down to uh, visit my parents and we go with them to their church, which is congregations there just kind of eating up the stuff that, they're, that, that the minister is talking about and, and her interpretation of some of these stories. And our family is just kind of walking out just kind of bewildered by the whole thing. Like, where in the world yeah. did she get that? And everybody else is just like, on the edge of your seats. Every mega church that I know of has a very charismatic preacher and, and can be preaching great, great stuff, but certainly that's been set up as the was, I mean, a lot of this stuff was opposite. And they're just kind of going with that. That's the danger of it. Yeah. The false light that Christ, God loves all of his children, and that is not That all roads, I love that one. That, that all roads, there's many roads to God, and it doesn't matter which one you take, and even though they conflict and everything, because that is seen as compassion and non judgment. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of this in that here a few weeks ago I was watching one of these shows about physics and what's coming out of all of that and Hawkins made this astounding decision that there wasn't any gods necessary because they, you know, the big boom and all these things. Yeah, yeah. This Japanese physicist, you know, he, I really like to listen to him because he's very, very humble and he says some of the things we're finding, he says it's standard he says you need to go back to the drawing board and he quoted Hawkins and he said Everything we're finding out is standing physics on its ears. Yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to hear that. That goes contrary to our funding. <laughs> okay, let me quote from um, President Irene. Um, by the way, again, if there's a more humble man on the planet, I don't know who it could be. Um, I think I, I've mentioned that had I that uh, as a as a young student at uh, Rick's College, and he would come in and uh, he was president of the college, and president Irene with beautiful tennis stroke. Oh my gosh! I just watch him, and he said he just worked on his stroke, and it was this powerful thing. Uh, but he would come and request clothes from us working in the gym there, and you'd almost have to ask. Well, what was that? What? <laughs> just very, just very loving and gentle in everything that he did. Um, you make choices every day and almost every hour that keep you walking in the light or moving away towards darkness. Some of the most important choices are about what you set your heart upon. <laughs> 
I love this also because this was given a few years ago when he was speaking, uh, I think, to the young women uh, of the church. There are so many things you might want that you may consider desirable. For instance, all of us want to some degree the approval of other people. All of us feel a need for friends. All of us are searching for some evidence that we are persons of worth. We make choices based on these desires. Some might lead us away from the light God offers us as a guide. Some may brighten that light by which we can find our way. So let me stop for a second. An example of a false light might be one that enlightens us in a way that we like. It's telling us what we want to hear. Some of my achievements and some of my friends were major factors in my sensing light. Um, Others, more than I knew at the time, were edging me away from the light. Important and long-lasting ways, choices I made to satisfy my desires for companionship and a sense of recognition were taking me either toward or away from uh, the light to guide my path. President Irene, uh, uh, very successful at the time at uh, Stanford and was getting a lot of accolades and things like that. And uh, Sister Irene says to him, you know, I think you, ought to, I think you could be doing more with your life. I think you ought to contact Neil Maxwell. And he said, why would I do that? And he knew Neil Maxwell. He said, I just think there might be some things you could do to help him. And he said, well, I'll have to think about it. The next day, Neil Maxwell called. Will you come visit with me? Uh, he was commissioner of education at the time. And President Iron says, sure, I'll, I'll come. Flies to Salt Lake and everything. And he says, you're doing magnificently, but we'd like to call you to be president of Rich College. And leave behind everything else that you're doing and walk into the path. Well, I think there is that... In, in sensing light, we also have to know where we look for for light. And I think President Irene is doing a good job in terms of explaining to us the daily decisions that we make. I heard one of the brethren say recently, and I, I'm not remembering exactly who it is, sitting maybe through the But he says, he said, we will be surprised when we get to the other side of the veil how closely God has micromanaged, that is his term, micromanaged our lives in ways that we were not aware. So, let me just kind of say in closing, we'll, we'll wrap up with this. One of the things that we're going to find as we dive into the Gospels is that we get a chance to uh, see up front and personal from those that knew him or talked to people and worked with him who the Savior was, how he went about his business of fulfilling the responsibilities that you see in Isaiah 61. As we do that, it's my hope that we'll learn more about ourselves because he came for us. So by learning about him, we learn about us. Learning about his mission, we learn about our needs. 
in doing that, he makes it easier for us to approach him with the things that we need and trust the things that we're going to get from him. And we let him be our true light rather than getting caught in some, in some other areas. I'm looking forward to this semester of the Gospels uh, to teach us about this magnificent being who is our God and our standard brother. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name.